Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Angelina Davidova, a Russian climate journalist reporting for Russian and international media. I'm Boris Schneider, a project manager at Anost in charge of the climate journalism section. As usual, our colleague Natalie Saw will be here with a news roundup at the end of the episode. Shortly, we'll be joined by Mariam Device from the Green Alternative to talk about climate finance in Georgia. But first, Angelina, I hear you've been up to some exciting stuff in Russia. Could you tell us a bit more? Absolutely. So ever since we came back from the COP26 in Glasgow, and I very much hope that you've listened to our previous episodes of the Eurasian Climate Brief podcast, where we were bringing the best of knowledge of experts from Eurasia on climate finance, on uh, climate protests, on climate policies of the region. So we were in Glasgow and now we're back in our countries. And I went back to Russia and surprisingly, there were quite a lot of events dedicated to the COP26 in Russia and the aftermath of the COP26. So I think personally, I've taken part in something like 20 events already, which were discussing the results of COP26 globally and for Russia. And one of these events, surprisingly, took place earlier this week in Moscow. It was a three-day conference, which was called International Climate Dialogues. And it was pretty much concentrated uh, around the topics of what regions and cities can do with regard to climate actions and climate agenda. And uh, once again, surprisingly, Moscow government has said they will come up with a new climate plan pretty soon. And uh, the basics of this climate plan will be decarbonizing energy supply. However, interestingly, they speak mostly about switching to natural gas and switching to some renewables and also switching to core generation of electricity and heating. And they're also talking a lot about decarbonizing the transport sector that is developing further public transportation opportunities, but also... Um, car sharing and bike sharing and bike infrastructure in the city and um, motivating people and Moscow citizens to use more of public transportation and other low carbon options of transport in the city like walking or bike or other ways not the car and then actually demotivating people to use private cars So there were a lot of talks about this. So what do we do with the transportation sector? What do we do with the energy sector? And um, um, so the plan sounded good as it was. And I think Moscow is aiming at uh, net zero by 2060, as Russia does. But then there was also some criticism from the environmental and climate activists. And um, the criticism was mostly concentrated around the fact that Moscow, even though it announces all these very beautiful and good-sounding climate plans, still cuts down a lot of its green areas in order to build more housing and more infrastructure, including roads, because there are more and more people in Russia who move to Moscow, like the Moscow conglomerate, the Moscow um, and uh, all the surrounding settlements around it probably make up to 20 million people in Russia now which is a lot. I'll, I'll just shortly remind you that Russia has a population of around 140 million. And um, so um, 
Moscow um, agglomeration uh, is growing. And um, yeah, there are huge conflicts around this uh, with some parks and also nature protected areas being cut down or being built with um, um, housing. And uh, I think that that's really a very big issue for Russia's capital. And how was this event received and who took part in it? Was it uh, a closed circle or was it something that was accessible to the public? From my understanding, it was more or less open. I mean, there were a number of international experts. Some of them actually came to Moscow and some of them took part in an online event. And then from the Russian side and from the Moscow side, there were people from the federal government, but also like city government and also companies and also think tanks and universities, a lot of people from the academic circles, but also civil society activists, like there were quite a number of groups which work on local environmental agenda in Moscow. There were like Greenpeace was there and Climate Action Network was there. So CAN, um, the part of CAN which works in Eastern Europe, Caucasus and Central Asia was there. So in a way, I mean, on one hand, Moscow really wanted to show that it's part of this global C40 movement, so a movement which shows how ambitious cities are all around the globe in um, moving forward with their climate ambition. On the other hand, they also wanted to invite some climate activists and uh, environmental activists. And, um, well, we'll have to see whether their criticism will be heard. Well, at least it was presented there, but then we'll see what happens next, like whether some action will be taken. So I almost feel like Moscow is moving forward with regards to energy supply and energy generation and transportation and a number of other like environmentally and climate friendly city policies. But then in the area of like more housing, more high rise housing and also more housing built in, um, in the spaces which used to be green spaces before. So that's that's a huge issue for Russian capital. Thank you very much for this overview, Angelina. Sure. Um, and then I also wanted to mention something else. Actually, last weekend, I went to the first ever in Russia environmental theater festival, which actually took place in St. Petersburg at the Alexandrinsky Theater, which was one of the first drama theaters in Russia, uh, which appeared in late 18th century. And um, that theater brought quite a number of theater groups from all over the country, which showed uh, a little bit more than 10 performances dedicated to various topics. So um, it was quite surprising for me to see many of them. And I was one of the expert community members, which were looking at the theater performances and then giving some feedback from the environmental and climate community. And that was also quite interesting because in a way we could see which kind of topics are interesting not only to the specialized expert community but also to the general public and the theater and art groups. And interestingly, those were mainly topics associated with waste, waste generation, waste recycling and um, other topics, air pollution. Like there were a number of theater performances which were dedicated to air pollution in Krasnoyarsk, which is a really large city in uh, southern Siberia in Russia, which has more than one million inhabitants and which often has something which is called the black sky, and uh, 
that phenomenon was reflected in that it was actually a dance theater piece, like contemporary dance theater piece. And I feel like it was very powerful. It also included some documentary parts. They were interviewing citizens of that region, the ones who stayed in the region and the ones who left the region because the environmental situation was like too bad. And then there was another remarkable piece which took place in Bashkortostan, which is also that the southern Ural region of Russia. And this is where they had an ongoing environmental disaster with air pollution coming from an old worked out quarry and local residents suffering from this air pollution for more than a year. And there was a like, mass and a very popular grassroots campaign. And it resulted in um, the quarry getting, um, being, like, getting a lot of water and um, local residents um, still suing um, federal, like national and regional governments for not providing um, good like information about environmental pollution. And that particular theater piece was actually dealing with the fact of what is it like to be an environmental activist in Russia now? What kind of oppression you get, what kind of public attitudes you get, how it can ruin your life, how it can ruin your family. In a way, it was a very personal piece, but it also spoke about many similar cases in Russia, not only that one in particular in Bashkortostan. So for me, it was quite surprising to see how many people to, when, came to see that festival and how many people came to see those particular plays. And um, since that festival was the first one in Russia, I was actually quite positively surprised that so many various environmental uh, topics and environmental problems get public attention and also get attention from theater community. So that's obviously something to be looked at in the um, future. Now, there's probably enough of climate initiatives in Russia, but before we dive into the topic of climate finance in Georgia, Boris, could you maybe briefly say what the statistic is like in terms of climate financing and about the main donors and projects underway in Georgia in terms of climate finance for mitigation and adaptation? So uh, there are quite a few donors operating in the region, but I will just focus on three for now. The biggest one is the Green Climate Fund. It was set up in 2010 and seeks to help developing countries within the global climate architecture with finance. It currently has four projects on the go, including on deforestation, robust climate information and early warning, green cities, and delivering climate finance to the private sector. There is also the Global Environment Facility, whose establishment dates back 30 years to the Rio Earth Summit. One of its most important projects in Georgia deals with enhancing resilience of the country's agricultural sector. And last but not least, the Adaptation Fund was established in 2010 to finance concrete adaptation projects and programs in developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to climate change. Our guest Mariam will be discussing projects by the Adaptation Fund in particular. We'll hear more about one carried out between 2012 and 2017 to prevent flash floods in the country's second largest river basin, located on the river Rioni, the main river in western Georgia. The project equipped locals with a whole set of tools against flooding, including a new flooding warning system and thorough mapping of vulnerable areas. 
It also attempted to fortify coastal areas. But there were also many things that went wrong, which Mariam will tell us about now. Angelina began by asking Mariam to introduce herself and her organization. I'm Mariam Davidza. I'm from Georgia. I work for a small NGO in Georgia called Green Alternative. Uh, and uh, I work on one hand on the development projects and uh, we are like monitoring of the projects which are supported by international financial institutions on the one hand. On the, on the second hand, I work, we are member of um, Adaptation Fund CSO Network uh, and uh, we are um, following the projects which are financed by Adaptation Fund uh, in Georgia in, uh, and in my region. Uh, yeah, and also we are trying to find linkage with uh, other projects which are financed by um, other um, uh, climate funds. Could you tell us what kinds of international climate finance projects have been realized in Georgia and are you happy with the results? Um, Uh, the first project, the large-scale one, which was implemented in Georgia, uh, it was uh, supported by Adaptation Fund. And then this project is uh, upscaled with GCF now. Uh, we also have other projects ongoing now. Uh, and the main thing, which we like, the problem is that there is some, some kind of, uh, these projects are fragmented and uh, they do not have synergies. I mean, general, the climate projects. And uh, now um, uh, Georgia plans to start developing a national adaptation uh, plan. Uh, which will be supported by GCF. And so, yeah, everyone hopes that this uh, document will be main guiding document and manage to have more synergy between the projects and develop the projects based on the national adaptation plan. So we will see. When I saw you in the halls of COP26 in Glasgow, you were telling me there was one particular project which was realized in Georgia And it was a project described as a nature-based solution, which, however, didn't work quite well. Can you please tell our listeners more details about it? Yeah, this project is the one which I mentioned already. This was the first large-scale project which was implemented in Georgia. Um, uh, this uh, project was was supported by Adaptation Fund and was uh, implemented by UNDP, United Nations Development uh, Program. And uh, it was um, uh, about building resilience, increasing resilience of high vulnerable communities and regi regions to uh, climate-related hazards such as flooding and flash floods on the one river basin, which is called River Rioni, which is the second largest uh, river in Georgia. So it had uh, various activities, uh, such as like some of them were in, about infra building infrastructure to. Um, protect local communities against the flooding and flash floods and uh, some of other activities we are about nature-based solutions and they use an agroforestry method um, to like in, again this, with the same purpose to avoid flooding of communities and the their agricultural lands Uh, yeah, overall, the project was um, evaluated as a success story, as um, and I interviewed uh, people from ministries, local government, local community, and the project people as well. And so the people generally evaluated this project as a um, success because as it was the first one, they gained some 
useful experience and now as it's upscaled they could use this for this bigger project but of course it's it had unfortunately some some drawbacks and my aim when i was studying this um, like uh, the results was that you identify what could be lessons learned that could be used for the upscaled project and uh, i was trying to check if they are uh, they did this kind of research that they could wanted to consider all these findings in their upscaled project but um, I'm not sure but hopefully yeah, we have many of lessons learned which could be used not only for this GCF project but generally while working on adaptation and not only on, in Georgia I guess. And has there been any involvement of local experts or the NGO community during that project? It was um, the, one of the challenge which project had um, like there were several challenges um, which project faced um, and uh, the significant challenge was about involvement of uh, local government and local communities so with uh, local government it was that um, for example the UNDP team by their good intention uh, they tried to approach locals by themselves and while um, the local governments they uh, were complaining that they could be more involved in this process which would help them to have more cooperation with locals and it could help them for maintenance activities and replication uh, another thing what was also interesting that uh, this uh, local infrastructure including the nature-based solution uh, they didn't affect the local balance sheet, I mean local governments, uh, it's under the central ministry and so that made local government less responsive to the maintenance of the infrastructure. So I think that should be considered in the future term. And uh, regarding the local government, it was also important that um, generally in Georgia, and I don't know, maybe it's in other countries as well, we have uh, so frequent um, staff turnover to the different institutions. So uh, the project was focused on individual um, representatives from the government. So they didn't think more about um, institutional capacity building. So in this term, it was less sustainable what they invested in uh, the local government. So this should be also considered. Uh, it's uh, about local government and um, referring to local communities. Um, they mentioned that um, if local locals would be involved uh, so early stages, they could bring more urgent needs, what they have that could be considered in the project. Uh, so they were talking about the main like some activities we are needed to be like prolonged you know, for example or some mm -hmm. um, areas should be strengthened as well which was not considered in the project so from what you are telling us it sounds like the results of the program and of this particular project have been somewhat mixed on one hand it has been realized on the other hand you feel like um, the interaction with the local experts and governments did not really run smoothly and also the results were somewhat not that um, resilient. Do we get it right? Yeah, so as the participation was not um, as uh, much as locals would 
um, wish. Uh, it affected the sustainability of the um, project um, infrastructure and the replication. Um, for example, referring to nature-based solutions, no, locals' knowledge was not um, used properly and considered while planning the uh, project um, and uh, also they didn't like project didn't think that they should explain what more why these adaptation measures would matter for them and that's why locals didn't care a lot um, because they didn't have enough ownership to that and also they even didn't have um, enough knowledge on um, um, this uh, complaint redress mechanism. Some of locals complained that this project activities affected their fences, for example, and they didn't, um, haven't been compensated for that. You are speaking about the role of nature-based solutions for this project. Could you please define in your own words what this term means? And do you have the feeling that it is being misused somehow? Um, yeah, actually, nature-based solution uh, during the COP as well. It was um, like one of the emphasis we are on based on nature-based solutions that it's really important. So it means uh, using um, nature solutions while um, implementing this kind of um, actions. Um, so, but it's really should be done really carefully uh, with the active participation of locals and also relevant experts. Um, yeah, so, but it has many risks, uh, such as it might get be like greenwashing easily. Um, and uh, in our case, it showed that uh, due to this um, lack of local um, local people participation and lack of expertise it appeared that they this project one of the activity was uh, not sustainable because they um, chose mm -hmm. the location poorly and uh, they planted uh, trees on the riverbank uh, that they were supposing that when these trees could be grown it would protect communities but it appeared yeah. that next year it was a uh, like flooding again and the river washed all these trees so this um, was not proper solution at the area so it's really important to consider which area you are doing that if it would work there otherwise it could be a green washing right yeah yeah i see um and um when we speak about georgia but also maybe other countries of the region how do you think international climate finance projects can become more effective, more inclusive, and also more sustainable? Uh, yeah, actually, there are so many challenges, not only in Georgia, when we see that um, in some cases, it's just the projects developed by uh, implementing entities, then it gets burden for local people. Um, and it's not really just how these all things are done. But actually, this when we compare these um, adaptation fund projects to others, they are better planned and they are trying to be more inclusive to the vulnerable people and local communities. Uh, but yeah, still there are many things yet that should be done. And firstly, we, are, we should start it from increasing local people um, involvement as early stages of project development as it's possible and it should be really 
bottom-up approach. And nowadays, some funds are promoting the uh, creativity and innovation uh, in these projects. But um, sometimes the activities are developed by um, just uh, international organizations who do not have any sense of local knowledge and um, their lifestyles. Um, so that's, in most cases, these right. solutions are imposed by like top down. So that's why some of the activities then are not sustainable enough. So it's important to ensure that local practices and maybe they are already innovative because in every cult, like culture also defines our everyday practice and maybe we all already have enough practices on ground but we are not take like considering them as much as it should be when we were at cop in glasgow we met yevgeny simonov a russian campaigner from rivers without borders who is campaigning against mega dumps which are financed by international institutions such as for example the world bank are mega dumps a local concern in your opinion Oh, mega dams! We also have this huge problem in Georgia. Um, yeah, and we see like local communities are fighting against them because these projects are just um, uh, just for the investors, not for local people, and even not for the our state, not for Georgia. Um, and uh, yeah, like actually, we. So that the one of the result of COP was this um, methane emission plug um, pledge um, declaration. Uh, so and we know that these mega dams are source of methane. So we really hope that uh, this, uh, like as our government signed on it, um, like we do not even in Georgia there are not any discussions that these uh, dams are um, bad for these methane emissions. So there are many things to be shifted. And um, exactly on this river, Brioni, which I mentioned, there are several dams planned. One is the huge cascade and local people are still outside. It's already more than a year they are protesting this dam. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, uh, like uh, the government tries to have uh, um, this... Um, um, adaptation actions and on the second hand they are building these huge dams so it doesn't make sense there should be integrated vision for um, every river or a, any kind of um, yeah plans it should not be just separated and then uh, conflicting each other if we try and take an even broader look we realize that many international climate projects including the ones known as sustainable actually aim towards economic growth. Do you think economic growth is compatible with climate crisis? Uh, yeah, it's a really important question. And uh, yeah, during COP, we also saw that so many local uh, communities, uh, we are protesting um, against this um, paradigm, what is really existing, which is about economic growth. And yeah, it doesn't make sense if we... Uh, do not so this economic growth is mainly about um, so it doesn't change the patterns of climate emissions and we see that these uh, people are still trying to find solution in the existing um, paradigm and have um, offsetting for example and we see that this practice already affected so many people and even like when we see there are already many projects which um, violated uh, 
local rights, indigenous people, uh, and it's uh, just example of land grabbing. Um, and uh, these global north countries and these main polluters are still keeping the polluting and having more emissions. So it will not, of course, change these existing patterns of emissions. So uh, everyone and me as well here is studying Edinburgh, this development and environment issues. So uh, the just only solution is changing the system, economic and social system. Otherwise, like it will be just a bad scenario, as scientists say. Do you see any ideas or um, projects in that field in the region that you work on? Or is it at this point still an idea for the future? Uh, I mean, it maybe seems a bit general and theoretical, but uh, hopefully we have enough like some examples in the world how this uh, shift should be happened so it's not just about like individual projects it's it's more about changing the system and um, like the first thing what should be done is changing a consumption pattern for example and uh, we have this theory of uh, degrowth for example which um, emphasizes this um, changing um, the consumption in global north and also having the sustainability in the global south um, so yeah and we have so many good cases on ground in the like in global south how locals are using resources in a sustainable manner um, so if we do not change this um, for example this bad practice of mining in the forest it doesn't make sense if you do this nature-based solution next to it so it's about changing all this uh, bad practices what's going on otherwise like how these other projects could work if you are still keeping these emissions or deforestation or violating people right thank you mariam and uh, thank you so much for being with us on the eurasian climate brief podcast all the best with all your further work and study and research projects and we hope to see you again thank you thank you so much for being with us thank you good luck to you thank you Thank you very much to Mariam Devitsi from The Green Alternative for joining us on the podcast. Now let's take a look at the latest news from across our region. More than 50 people have died in a coal mine explosion in the region of Kimirovo, Siberia. Smoke filled the mine in the early hours of Thursday the 25th of November after a spark provoked a methane explosion, according to the regional deputy prosecutor, General Dmitry Demeshin. 51 miners are currently being treated for injuries. The wife of Boris Pilyakin, one of the miners killed in the incident, told the state news agency Ria Novosti that everyone knew that methane levels in the mine were high, but the miners continued to work anyway. Around 2,000 demonstrators rallied in Belgrade on Wednesday the 24th of November to protest against government plans to ease expropriation and weaken referendum standards. Environmentalists argue the bills are set to force through unpopular mining projects such as Rio Tinto's $2.4 billion lithium mine in western Serbia. Residents have time and again refused to sell their land to the company, while the country's president, Aleksandr Vucic, has promised to hold a referendum on the mining plans. Mr Vucic has denied the expropriation law was designed to enable Rio Tinto to take control of the land needed for the mine.
Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has announced plans to plant one billion trees in the next three years across the country. However, the Ukrainian nature conservation and biodiversity expert, Bodan Potts, told Euronews the aim was unrealistic in terms of space and timing. The president of Kazakhstan, Kasim Jomar Tokayev, announced on the 19th of November that the country has no choice but to build a nuclear plant amid increasing energy shortages caused by local cryptocurrency databases, Eurasianet reports. Electricity demand has skyrocketed since Chinese cryptocurrency miners migrated to Kazakhstan after Beijing banned the energy-hungry process on its territory. A draft proposal by the European Commission to axe methane emissions includes a ban on routine flaring and venting, as well as penalties for polluting fossil fuel infrastructures, Eurectiv reported on the 25th of November. The legislation comes after the EU committed to slash its methane emissions by 30% based on 2020 levels as part of the Global Methane Pledge at COP26. According to data compiled by the Clean Air Task Force, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland and Romania are among the worst methane leakers in Europe. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Eurasian Climate Brief and a big thank you to our supporters at The Battleground magazine. Don't forget to follow the podcast in your favourite app and you'll find us on social media at Eurasian Climate. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. We'll be back in a fortnight with a new episode. So see you then. Music